You're listening to the Coastal Church Audio Podcast with Pastor Dave Coop. Well, we are on a series about eternity, for all eternity. And if you are here for the first time, I uh, didn't get the rest of these. They're online. You go online, listen to them on by podcast. Last week, Pastor James did a great job talking about living in the light of eternity. That's a really important message when we talk about eternity. Because one of the things that our Lord said, he said, occupy till I come back or be about the Father's business till I come back. A number of years ago, there was kind of this movement in the churches where they would say, well, Jesus is coming back, so let's not get education, let's not do anything, let's just basically store up enough stuff for ourselves, and when Jesus comes back, then we'll get out of here. That's not the escapism mentality that Jesus had in mind. He said, I want you to be busy, be about my father's business, and just be out there doing what they did on that Panama trip and also what we do in our own neighborhood. So... That being said, more of that good stuff James went through last week. Go back and catch that. Today we're going to talk about Jesus and eternity. And uh, obviously we could spend a long time on that. But we're just going to cover three really simple points this morning. Talk about Jesus in eternity past. How Jesus split time and space. Went through this envelope of eternity and came and visited humanity. What that did for us. And then eternity future, what it looks like forward, Jesus as we look forward. So three simple things we're going to look at. If you've been here for any of the messages, you know that you have eternity in your heart. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that he has placed eternity in our heart. If you've got one of those computers that says Intel chip inside, you are a human being with an eternity chip on the inside. You came from the factory that way, you have an eternity chip on the inside of you. And every one of us, we have this desire, yearning for eternity. We're, we're different than animals. We have this desire to know where we're going, what's next, and we think about it. You can go back through history. You can go to different parts of the planet, and you'll find that every tribe, every culture throughout history, people have wondered, okay, where did we come from? Where are we going? And so we'll talk about it, what Jesus had to say about it. First of all, Jesus always existed. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. He was with God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. John, who writes here, is referring to Jesus. Jesus has always existed. He has no beginning, infinity. He's always been there, and He is the Word. So he makes it pretty clear about that. And then in John chapter 8, verse 58, another verse, this is where Jesus says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abram was, I am. Now, you can maybe during the week go back to John chapter 8 and read the whole story. It's quite a story, quite a passage, the way it starts to the way it finishes. There's a bookend on either side of this chapter 8. And in this chapter, Jesus has told the religious leaders that if anyone kept his words, they wouldn't die. And they respond by saying, well, are you greater than Abraham? That's their most revered patriarch. Are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus responds that Abraham had seen his day and rejoiced. And they're looking at him like a cow at a new gate. Like, like what? Abraham saw your day and rejoiced. Like, Abraham lived a long time ago, Jesus. You're not even 50 years old. 50 was a year that you were eligible to be a priest. So he said, you're not even 50. This is crazy. How did Abraham see your day and rejoice? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And then after that, Jesus makes a statement. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was, which would be true. But he's saying something much, much more powerful. He said, before Abraham was, I am. You know what they do after that? They're by the temple. Herod's men are still rebuilding the temple. There's rocks around, stones around. They pick up stones, and they try to stone Jesus. Now, if you read the beginning of the chapter, there was another stoning. I told you there's bookends on this chapter. The other bookend is another stoning where they were trying to stone a woman caught in the act of adultery. Remember, Jesus rescues her, defends her, and he says to them, hey, you guys, if there's nobody has any sins, you go ahead and throw a stone. And they all left. I think some of these same dudes were there at the beginning of the chapter, and now they're wanting to stone. They, these guys had a thing for stoning people. Anyhow, now they're wanting to stone Jesus. But why did they want to stone Jesus? Because he said, I am. And to them, that was just absolute blasphemy because he's saying, I'm God. And the words when he said to them, before Abram was, I am, do you know that they, would, they wouldn't even say the word I am? That was the highest name for Jehovah for them. And if they were reading, for example, the scriptures in the synagogue, when they got to that part, they would stop reading. The priest would bow his head. Everybody in the congregation would bow their head. And they knew they got to that point in the reading where I am is mentioned. If you were copying it, the scribe would actually take another pen to write down I am. That's how much they revered this name. And for Jesus to stand up and say to them, I am, it just, it, it, they just came undone. They said, all right, what more do we need? Get some rocks, let's stone him. He's blaspheming. He's saying he's God. And he was. He's saying, I am. I, I am not time. I am eternity. I am from eternity past. How many of that is one really, really bold statement? I mean, either you got to be, really deluded and crazy to say that, or it must be true. C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is either a lunatic and a liar, or he's Lord. There's not much room in between. Tim Keller, who wrote a book, King's Cross, he put it this way. Uh, he said, either you'll have to kill him, talking about Jesus, or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. That's what happens when you study the life of Jesus. The more you study him, the more you look at him, it'll either make you like, man, no way. It's it's a polarization. It polarizes, oh, I worship you, Jesus. I love you. Or, oh, can't stand it. I want to, I read a bumper sticker one time says, Jesus, deliver me from your followers. I mean, it's just like it was, (laughs) it's just so, there's this, And and the Lord said, hot or cold, there's not much lukewarm. It's it's either, there's not much gray area. Either people really love Jesus or like in this story, they want to kill him. And I think Tim Keller's got it right. With Jesus, when you study and look at his life, either you'll say, kill him, or you'll say, I want to worship him. Why? Because Jesus says some far out things. He says, I am. Before all eternity, I am. Not I was. I am. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That really offends people, or they say, I will worship that. I was looking for one who was and is the way. No apologies. He says, I am. And they try to stone him. It's not yet his time to die. He slips out. Quite an interesting little verse. We'll have to go back and read it. He just kind of slips through the crowd and disappears. 
God, the flesh, incarnate, and they don't get him, not his time. So he always existed, had no beginning. And he also created all things. John 1, 3 goes on. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. That verse is in your notes. You can also scan it in on your QR code on the back of your bulletin if you want. It might be easier to do it that way. Either way, it's there for you. Or you can look it up in the Bible the old-fashioned way. You can do that too. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Would you read that out loud with me? Let's say that out loud together. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. Wow, everything. Isn't this another really, really bold statement? Existed for infinity, eternity past, and then it says he created everything that there is. In Colossians, we read this. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, kings, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities. Everything has been created through him and for him. He existed before everything else began, and he holds all creation together. I think sometimes we have kind of a watered-down version of Jesus. We see Jesus, cute little baby in a manger, and, you know, the sheep came, the shepherds came, the wise men came, and we have this nice, cute version of Jesus. And then the healer, the one who did miracles, the one who fed the multitudes, and it's warm, it's great, it's beautiful, died and rose again. And all of that is so true and powerful. I think sometimes we need to expand our understanding of who we're worshiping. He is our Savior. He is our King. He's also Creator and holds all things together. You're sitting on a pew right now that's got a bunch of molecules and atoms that are turning around. You know, as you're sitting there, He's holding it together. If He decided to take a break on that, we'd all be falling through. He's holding it together. If you, if you went down to the smallest molecule and atom, you'd find that what holds it together? That's one of the mysteries of science. They're like, okay, how does this thing hold together? What keeps everything going in perfect symmetry? How is that possible? And then how do you look at the huge vastness of the universe and you see huge stars and solar systems and galaxies, our Milky Way, 100,000 light years across, spinning on an axis 200 miles an hour that takes like a million years for a revolution, who holds this together? Who keeps everything in sync? How does, our, how does our sun, I mean, our planet rotate around the sun in the perfect distance, a perfect, just so that light can be here, plants can exist, vegetation, oxygen. It's so complex. Who holds it all together? Jesus. This is what Paul's saying here. He holds all things together. Wow. He was there. I read recently in a National Geographic magazine regarding the origin of the universe. They state, the Big Bang Theory leaves several major questions unanswered. One is the original cause of the Big Bang itself. We, we, we can take laws and we can go back in time. We can go 10 billion, 20 billion years back. But then we get to a point where it's like, okay, the laws we have aren't explaining how this thing started. And Jesus is saying, I'll explain it. I created it. Now, it takes faith to believe that, no doubt about it. It takes faith to believe, Jesus, you are the creator. You created the heavens and the earth. You created this world. 
But likewise, I think it takes faith when it comes to a theory, because as they say, we don't know what causes. Several answers have been proposed to address this fundamental question, they write, but none has been proven. And even adequately testing them has proven to be a formidable challenge. We, We can't explain what's going on. Jesus comes along and says, I did it. I created the heavens and the earth. You explore the laws, you look at the laws, but I wrote the laws. I'm the one who put them in place. There's a great scientist, mathematician, astronomer. His name was Kepler. You may have heard his name. He had a lot to do with the laws of planetary motion, optics, geometry. Made a lot of discoveries. And one time when he's, he's, he's made some amazing discoveries and he said this, Oh God, I am thinking thy thoughts after thee. He was discovering all these laws of planets and how they went in an elliptical path. He's the one who discovered that. And he thought, you know what? God, I'm just thinking your thoughts. You designed all this. I'm just thinking what you put into motion. So Jesus, in the, in the past, was the creator. He holds all the creation together. And, of course, uh, he intersected our time and space. Let's go to that second point because we could talk a lot about Creation past, holds all things together. Jesus in eternity past. But let's talk about how he came and intersected time and space. Through the porthole of eternity, he comes into our world. And he left all his privileges behind. He, he was and is God. He had glory. He had all those things. And we read in Philippians chapter 2, But he stripped himself of privileges, rightful dignity, so as to assume the guise of a servant, a slave, in that he became like man, was born a human being, and after he appeared in human form, he abased and humbled himself still further, carried his obedience to the extreme of death, even the death on the cross. So he, he leaves the privileges of creator to come to be with us, takes on human form so he can be with us. Why does he do this? He wants to conquer something. He wants to conquer death. He loves mankind. Man is separated from him. So when we talk about Jesus and eternity, this is the the hinge for Christianity. If you take this piece out, nothing else works. This is crucial when you understand Jesus and eternity. We're in this... In this moment, he comes to our planet, he comes to our world, and he says, I will take on your form. I will live with you. I will explain what the Father is like. I will reveal the Father, and I will make a way back for you to a relationship with the Father. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve sinned. They were banished from the garden, and outside the garden was this flaming sword, and nobody could go back into the garden. If you tried to go back into the garden, You would die under the sword that you couldn't go back in. And there was a death that came, a spiritual death. That relationship with God was cut off. We were forsaken from God. The relationship was gone. And Jesus comes and he conquers death. But he, what he did is he went under the sword. Because remember on the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken. He was cut off. Can you imagine? He was one with the Father throughout all eternity. We can't imagine it. But for this little speck, for this moment, 
Three days, three nights, he's cut off from the Father. And he takes what we should have upon himself, separation, death. The sword kills him. He dies. He's cut off. But then something happens because he's God. Cut off but never stopped being God. He rises again and he kills the sword. The sword is conquered. Death is conquered. One writer put it this way. I have to find the quote. Uh, John Owen, he said, The death of death in the death of Christ. Death died. Folks, this is Christians, one of our greatest, greatest things. Death, where's your sting? Death is conquered. The separation, now we can go back into that paradise, into that relationship with the Father. Wow. That's the best thing. That even here, while we're living now, waiting for heaven, waiting for all eternity, we can have an intimate relationship with God the Father because of what Jesus did for us. And if you've experienced it, like most of you have, there is nothing like it, correct? Just to know him. Paul, after he wrote so much of the New Testament, said, oh, that I would know him in the power of his resurrection. There's just something about knowing Jesus. Why? Because he took us back into the relationship that was lost in the garden. And when Jesus was there hanging on the cross, and after he said, my God, my God, why have forsaken me? And he breathed his last. In the temple, there was this holies of holies where nobody could go into except once a year, a priest would go in one day after he was, did a bunch of rituals and took within him a sacrificial blood of the lamb. Then he could go in. But that temple was, had this holies of holies. And at that moment, when Jesus dies, it says the veil, there is this heavy curtain around it. It was torn in two. And it, at that point, from then on, we could go into the presence of God. The Roman soldier was standing there when Jesus breathed his last. He said this, that is the Son of God. A Roman soldier says that. He said, why would, it, why would a Roman soldier say that is the Son of God? I think one of the reasons he said it is because this guy had seen a lot of people die. Have you ever seen somebody breathe their last breath? You won't forget it. If you've seen somebody breathe their last, you'll remember it right away. See, I was there when they died. There's something about seeing somebody die, their last breath taken. And this Roman soldier, he'd killed a lot of people. He'd seen a lot of people die, crucified a lot of people. You didn't become a Roman soldier because of some political appointment. You became a Roman centurion because you won a lot of battles. And when he sees Jesus die, he goes, this man is different. And really for the first time in the Gospels, this Gentile Roman soldier says, that was the Son of God. On their coins, they said that Caesar was the son of, or Augustus was the son of Caesar, something like that. But he's saying, no, this is the Son of God. What a revelation. Whew. Jesus, eternity past, creator, holds all things together. Splits time and eternity comes and lives amongst us, and he reveals what the Father's like. At one point, Philip says to Jesus, because Jesus had told him, I'm going away. And Philip says, hey, where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to the Father. And like disciples, like kids, they say, hey, can I go too? And uh, Jesus says, well, I'm going to the Father. And he said, well, what's the Father like? Can I go to the Father? And they're asking, and Jesus says, you know what? 
Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Just look at my life. And that's holds true today. If you study the life of Jesus, if you've seen Jesus, studied him, you know what the Father's like. Jesus healed people, the Father heals people. Jesus didn't make anybody sick. He healed people. Jesus set people free from demonic spirits, fed the multitudes, kind, forgiving, just. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I came to reveal the Father, and I came to bring you back into relationship. What was lost in the garden, I'm bringing you back to that. This incident of him conquering death for the rest of eternity, folks, the rest of eternity, we will say, oh, thank God for that. Why do you think Jesus has, he got beat up really bad, right, when he was crucified? He, they, they said he, you couldn't even recognize him. He was so bloody, beaten, bruised. It was a terrible execution. He would have had scars all over his body if it was possible for him to be healed, to recover. But he has only scars in two places, his hands and his feet. Why? For all eternity, we'll never forget how Jesus came. And brought us back into relationship. Titus 3, 5, and 6 is there in your notes. It says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercies he saved us, through washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That word regeneration, very interesting word comes from two Greek words. The first word is palin, which means back to, once again, anew. The second word is genesis. Do you get what it's saying here? Through Christ, he has brought us back to genesis, back to what was lost in the garden, back to a relationship with the Father. Wow. So, very important what Jesus did there. But let's talk a little bit. We don't have a lot of time. Jesus in eternity future. This would be a year series. And I just encourage you, hopefully through this uh, month, talking about eternity, Jesus and eternity, your hunger for the Bible goes up. And you just get a little more curious, want to read a little bit more. And there's a lot of books, and there's a lot of different takes on it too. And so as a church, we purpose to stay in the middle of the road on it. But I encourage you, study the book of Revelation and it'll be a lifetime, and even then, you'll still be studying it. Read different books on it, but I encourage you to study it. Study what's coming. Study the passages. Lots of views on it. But this much I want to tell you for certain, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. What a day that's going to be. Woo! He's coming back. John chapter 14, verse 3, he said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I'll receive you to myself. Where I am, there you may be also. And Acts, the angel said to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring at the sky? Jesus has been taken away from you into heaven. And someday, just as you saw him go, he will return. He's coming back. He's coming back. I was in a, the airport as we were coming back the other day and overheard this guy talking about the Hurricane Irene that was blowing up the east coast of the United States. And this guy's, oh, you know, the, the religious people are going to have a lot of fun with this, all the doom and gloom, and, you know, they're going to really make a big thing out of this again. And he was going on, and he was mocking our faith that the end times are coming and Jesus will return. I go, that's interesting. 
throughout history, people have always had a hard time believing what Jesus or God said would happen. Noah, God said, flood's coming. And what happened? Did everybody believe? No. Noah and his family did, but there was a lot of others that said, yeah, right, a flood. Right. Noah, good luck with that. Building a boat, are you? Like, good luck with that. Okay, you know, they, they, they made fun of him, right? And then you have the story of Abraham. Abraham is called, and he said, you know, I had a dream. I had a dream, Dad. You know, I just looked up in the stars, and God said, as many of the stars up there, that's how big your family's going to be. And they go, yeah, right, Abraham. Okay, right. But today, we think, yeah, Abraham is the most well-known figure, perhaps, in the world. He's known in the Islamic world. He's known in the Jewish world. He's known in the Christian world. Abraham is very, very well-known. Any part of the world, Abraham is known. But back then, it would have seemed crazy. Then Moses says, I'm going to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And Pharaoh said, yeah, right. The Egyptians said, yeah, right. You're going to do that. Sure you are. But what happened? They left Egypt, went to the promised land. You can go throughout the history. Jesus said, disciples, I'm going to die. Three days, I'm coming out of the grave. They said, okay. <laughs> we, we've ne- like, for our perspective, we can look back from history, and we have a lot of things to compare to. But for them, understand, this was a totally radical new thought. They had no reference point for this. And he said, I'm going to rise in three days. Okay. <laughs> and the disciples are still thinking earthly kingdom. Hey, I want to sit on the right side. You sit on the left side. Unless... They think Jesus is on this big political campaign, and, and they just want to be part of the new kingdom. And they think he's going to defeat the Romans. They don't quite get this thing. And Jesus repeats it a lot of times. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised again. Like Jonah, die, raised again. He keeps telling them this. And, and do they believe? I mean, these are his best boys, right? These are the best followers of disciples. And when Jesus is dead and in the grave, where are they? They're in this upper room having a pity party. It's the girls. It's the ladies who go to the tomb and say, let's check this thing out. And even them, they're bringing perfumes and, you know, different uh, burial uh, incense and so forth. And then they find Jesus alive. So they run back and tell the disciples, hey, guys, woo! guess what? He's alive. Yeah, right. Give me a break. If he was going to tell anybody, he would have told us, you're the ladies, we're his followers, so thank you very much. And Jesus appears to them and he rebukes them and said, you guys, I am alive. And all of a sudden the light goes on. Yeah. Hello. That's what he meant. He was saying he's going to rise from the dead and he did. That's what this scripture means. That's what this prophecy means. That's what, yes, of course it makes sense. And today we look at Jesus saying, I will come again. For every time it says that he would come the first time to the earth, when he walked the seashore of Galilee, do you know that there's eight prophecies that say that he'll come back another time? Eight times more. He's coming back. And we kind of look at it like the disciples, yeah, okay, you're going to die. Raise, I believe it, but how this is going to work, I, yeah. And we look, Jesus, you're coming back. How is this all going to fit? But he's coming back. He's coming back. Story of Noah is true. Moses is true. Jesus rising from the dead is true. A lot of smart people try to disprove that. And when they set out to disprove it, they come back and say, No, that's true. That happened. 
people a lot smarter than us, and they, lawyers and brilliant minds. They go, no, yeah, that, that happened. No other event in history has been more studied and analyzed than the resurrection of Christ because it's the hinge of all Christianity. But he's coming back. Wow. Today, he's our lawyer. Today, he's our advocate. He sits at the Father and makes intercession for us. But when he comes back, he'll be our king. He'll be our judge. He'll come back to rule and reign. The disciples went to him and said, Lord, can you give us some signs of your coming back? Just like, you know, your kids would say, can you tell us when you're going to be coming back? What are some signs of you coming back? And he got, does in Matthew and Luke. You can read them. There's a lot of different signs. We won't take time to put together the timeline for you today. That would be a whole month's lesson of the timeline. But just know Jesus is coming back. There will be a tribulation on this earth. There will be a thousand-year reign of Christ. There will be a battle of Armageddon. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in his hands. And everything's going to be all right. Somebody once asked me, are, are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? A long time ago, a great preacher by the name of Gerald Durstein said, he said, it's actually pan-trib. It'll all pan out in the end, Dave. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and so, <laughs> pan-trib. It's all going to work. But Jesus is coming back as king. He's coming back as Lord. He'll rule and reign. Wow. The disciples said, what are some signs? In Matthew, he gives a few signs in Luke. I won't take time to unpack all of that. But one, he said the human race will have the ability to exterminate itself. It, I think we do today, right? We've got 10 countries that got nukes that could blow up the planet. And we're wrestling with another country that's trying to develop one. We, he said the Jewish homeland would be reestablished and surrounded by enemies. You can take a look at Jerusalem today, more than ever surrounded by enemies. There would be a combination of earthquake, waves in the sea, strange events in the sky, famine, pestilence, distress, and fear. Just turn on your news if you haven't caught that one. You, you can see that there's a combination of this like never before. And I, I hear the critics say, yeah, well, that's been throughout history. You're right. It has been throughout history. But take the time and map it out. And you'll see we are on an exponential increase like never before in history. Open Al Gore's book, Inconvenient Truth. You'll see the graphs. All exponential after the year 1900. Whether it be extinction of species, whether it be population, whether it be increase in the number of diseases, whether it be increase in earthquakes, whether it be increase in whatever, we're on an exponential curve. I met this one guy for lunch, and he was not any kind of a believer. And he said, you guys, you believe that Jesus is coming back. Where do you get off on this? And so I said, okay, x-axis is time, y-axis is frequency. Let's plot some things. Let's plot population. You. Let's plot. I just started plotting these things. I said, do you agree? Yeah, do you agree? Yeah, we plot. I said, okay, you tell me, what do you believe? What's your belief system? How do you unpack this? He goes, well, something's going to give. <laughs> this is exactly. That's what the Bible says. Something's going to give. But I'm glad I'm not in some quasi land like, okay, I hope it all works out. And no, Jesus didn't want us living in that state. That's a state of flux, of confusion and emptiness. I created the past. 
I intersected time and space. I'm in control, and I am in control of the future. Put your hand in my hand. You're going to be okay. It's as simple as we can make it this morning. He gave a lot of signs of his return. They're worth studying, worth looking at. But the most important decision today is, is your hand in his hand? Are you one with him? Are you just dating Jesus or you want to be married? When you're dating, you just kind of, the commitment hasn't been made yet. But when you get married, you're one. Maybe for some of you, you, you've been dating Jesus, but you've never said, I will give my life to you. There's a difference. Water baptism next week, everybody who's baptized, they're not dating Jesus. They're going public. Jesus is my Lord. When I got married to my wife, I went public. I love her. I'm giving my life to her. I'm going to serve her. I give my life to Jesus. I go public. Not just dating Jesus, not just interested in Jesus. I want to be one with him. I want him in my life. I want to trust him as we go forward in a world that's very, very concerned of what's coming. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to download free notes from this message, then visit our website, www.coastalchurch.org.